Alright, this is show notes for the quickie 15. Today is my best friend from fourth grade's birthday. Oh. Yeah. What's his name? Her name is Claudia. <laughs> Happy birthday, Claudia. Why would it be a boy? Well, I was trying to do the reverse and not, oh, not assume. specific and assume. Oh. Thought you were making What's their name? It was like a you have a little boyfriend? Like, you know, family would ask your kids that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not your family. Have we started? I don't know. I guess so. Hey, fuckers. We're in show notes. Talking about 99's best little friend from when? Fourth grade. Fourth grade. It was a short-lived friendship, but Uh-oh. every December 6th, I'm like, happy birthday. Oh, the you day know? before the infamous D-Day, right? December 7th, isn't that it? Sure. So, um, still available till the end of the year. Milton23 is your code for 10% discount on all holiday merchandise. All merchandise. For the holidays. Yeah. There you go. And specifically the holiday merch. Tons of coffee orders coming through. People answering the call for those holiday samplers to give out. What a great gift. Indeed. We encourage everybody to do that if you haven't yet done that or are you still adding things to your holiday shopping list. Here's how this is going to go over the next little bit. We have an episode coming out this weekend. It's a short one, but a tight one. We've got show notes that you're listening to currently. And then we're probably taking a week off. Why? Because 99 and I have a lot of work to do in order to set us up for 2024. And by that, I mean, we are relaunching our website. For and the third I time. think you're going to be pleasantly surprised by what's there. At this rate, we're setting a precedent to have a new site every year. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Sure. We have some announcements within that news site, the new site rather, Uh, related to the newsletter and new membership tiers. We're stepping our game up in a big way. We're really going after it. And it's only because so many of you have helped us along the way to get to where we are. And we're hoping that hundreds more and then someday thousands more will assist us in really driving this home to create one of the one-stop shops for all of your progressive-minded news needs. Sorry, just adjusting my hair. It's something to see. It's like (laughs) it requires two hands to move it from one side of her head to the other. I ran it on my serum. This is all natural. It's extraordinary. Wait till it dries, though. It's going to be, I'm going to look like Hagrid. It's extraordinary. Thank you. Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is not, this is not real. The, The water is making it look better. No. Whatever it is. But yeah, I dissociate. There are people that would kill for that main. In headlines, we got a few things happening in the world. We're going to link to uh, a piece in The Guardian that talks about uh, the White House warning that it's out of money and nearly out of time to aid the war in Ukraine. Whatever will we do when we run out of proxy money to fund somebody else's war? What then? I'm more concerned about the time. <laughs> Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. Is the do we do they know something we don't? I've seen reports of Russian soldier soldiers that are like, "Can we stop now?" And obviously, 
Ukrainian people being like, is this, is, can we, can we be done? It's like nobody, nobody even realizes or, or understands why any of this is still happening. And we're, we're just worried that uh, if we don't get a functional Congress that we can't send them more billions of dollars to continue to, uh, to execute this war effort. Can I be a conspiracy theorist? Sure. Why are the only wars going on right now involve heavily populated countries with Jews? I don't think there are any Jews left. It, didn't the Russians expel all of them? I think they came back. <laughs> Who? I don't know. You're telling me there's no Jews in Russia? Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. And Ukraine. Ukraines. Ukrainians. Historically, that's a really good question. I think I'm... I actually don't know if I'm technically Russian or Ukrainian because my family was fiddler on the roof. <laughs> Is that a, that's a verb now? I made it a verb. After I went home and watched it last week, after we talked about the war, I was like, I need some nice... Well, it's not actually a nice movie, and there's a lot of violence in it. So, I don't know. I needed something comforting, like the sound of Tevye's voice. There are only 40,000 Jews living in Ukraine. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, after the war before. Would you like to, right now, would you like to listen to uh, Top Level, where all your people are? Sure. 442,000 of them are in France, 394,000 in Canada. 292,000 in the United Kingdom. There are more Jews in France than there are in the Ukraine. Ten times as many. That's wild to me. 173,000 in Argentina. 145,000 in Russia. Okay. 118,000 in Australia. Great. So in both cases, the Jews are the aggressor. <laughs> um, in Australia? Is that what you said? Yeah. An Australian Jew. Yeah. That feels like an oxymoron. Oh, it's weird, right? There's 15,000 in Chile. Okay. 14,000 in Turkey. Honestly, these are all surprising figures to me. I just assumed we were all here. 10,000 in Panama. I didn't think there were 10,000 people in Panama. <laughs> anywhere hey, weird? where are the United States? What about like anywhere in Asia? Got uh, any like Chinese Jews, Japanese Jews? Seven million are in Israel, by the way. Well, yeah. Hmm. What about like South Africa? This is, this is really kind of an incomplete list. This is annoying. South Africa is 51,000. Okay. More than Ukraine still. Is it because Ukraine's tiny? I'm telling you, they were expelled. I know, but I just assume they Although, came back. The Economist says that Ukraine's small Jewish community is thriving, and that's why everybody hates them. Interesting. Because they just thrive. They do well. They hang together. They're like, we'll take care of our own. Keep educating people. It's like Tevya said. That's why we always keep our hat on our head. Is that what Tevye said? Well, because he, well, the good book said, but mm. you know, he says he, at the beginning, he says he doesn't know why they always wear their hat, but God says too. And at the end he says, because they're getting kicked out of Anatevka, he says, maybe this is why we always keep our hats on. Oh. So. A, I'll call him a friend. Somebody I was with when I was traveling again for soccer recently, uh, asked a very genuine question and I appreciated it. And to Do me. Do Jews have horns? <laughs> To me, it's important that we have these type of discussions. He said, did Jews have horns? <laughs> you said yes. So he said, hey, what are you working on on that podcast of yours? And I told him, just came through a series on Israel-Palestine. And that led to a two-hour conversation from a, a, a man who really, I, I wouldn't, I don't think he would chalk up intellectual curiosity as like one of his primary traits. Let's Boy, just say. I hope he doesn't listen. Definitely doesn't. Um, <laughs> But avid consumer of news, 
and just likes to ask general questions. And, and we, we wind up in these really great conversations. And I and I appreciate his worldview on things when, when we talk about things because he, he comes at things from a very guttural, very visceral place. And uh, on the follow-up to that, the very next day, he came up to me. He's like, can I ask you a like a like a sensitive question you promise you won't get mad and i said yeah of course he said why does everybody hate the jews wow right so a couple things i really think that questions like that that come from an authentic place of learning are okay no matter how insensitive they might seem i don't even think it sounds insensitive it sounds astute well yeah, but you can see how it would be like. Unless he was you know. using like the K word. <laughs> no, no, he did not. Uh, and, you know, the the best answer that I could come up with, you know, just from reading, research, understanding the the concept of the diaspora is to go back to when the Romans and the Jews were cohabitating for a while in the Roman Empire within, you know, in, in and around Jerusalem. So we're talking precisely pinpointing the, the so-called biblical era. And the Jews, the Russians, had, the Russians, the Romans had passed a series of laws that basically said, listen, you can, you can do your own thing. You can have your own religions, much like a lot of the other empires had operated throughout history and antiquity. Uh, the only thing is um, you also have to pay fealty to the state and uh, all of your other religious interests must be subservient to uh, the Roman Empire, and the, and and also they would prefer if you just followed the uh, pagan Roman gods as well. And the Jews were like, can't do that. Thank you. Not going to do that. That's that's not who we are. And they were the only ones that did that. And that type of resistance that came from basically a, the first original monotheistic close-knit understanding of their of humans' relationship to God was again singular to uh, the Jewish faith and, and community and that continued and I think became part of the identity over time and during periods of when the the golden age for example when all people were theoretically thriving at least better than they had in times period and there were moments ex very extended moments of peace there was not persecution per se uh, specific to the Jewish people but during times of stress and depression, the Jewish community in diaspora living all over the world tended to stay together and focus on what I would consider more secular aspects of life, which is the way that they would conduct themselves morally and ethically, but also in the way that they studied. They weren't showy. It was never about uh, pomp and circumstance and, and gaudiness and baubles and, you know, having you know, digging up like whose church was made from gold and whose was made from silver. It was never about that. It was always about education, about family and about principles. And that's what allowed the, them to keep their faith together. And when they were consolidated in around 1000 or 1100 by the most, I guess, famous synthesizer of Jewish code, which was Maimonides, it really sort of laid out a, a path for how to live and how to exist as a community prior to the to the concept of a nation state like how do we maintain our fealty to one another but also to god uh in the way that we want to live and how do we and how do we Im imbue our children and our descendants with the core concepts and principles of judaism and they stayed together they stuck together no matter where they were and did they thrive as a result of that yes because education had primacy among all other things 
And so during bad times, Jews often found themselves doing a little bit better. I don't know how else to say it other than, but you know, that leads to the obvious tropes of, oh, the wealthy Jewish banker, the wealthy Jewish this or that, you know, the miserly Jew and all of the ways that, that we've sort of mocked and stereotyped Jewish people over, over centuries. But I think a lot of that just stems from cultural and education pillars that are inherent within the Jewish religion in a different way. Because remember, throughout most of history, until the Enlightenment, the doctrines of the Catholic Church as an example, there were very few people that were literate among the classes, and they were faithful people that would attend church, and it was up to the individual priest and their interpretation of what they were reading in a book that has a lot of inconsistencies. And so you had a lot of inconsistent thematic relationship to the uh, to sort of the Christian faith over time among a very uneducated population. And one of the reasons the Enlightenment was so transformational is because people began to read. They became literate. And then they realized what they were learning from the priests was largely debunked or, or sometimes just made up. There were even illiterate priests that were just making stuff up as they went along in certain parts of the world that, you know, carried a lot of weight. So, you know, I think education to me is the one standout that that kept the Jewish people together, kept them aligned, and did the hard work of, of sort of aligning these principles instead of doctrines, they're principles that are studied and researched and and fully, you know, fully drawn on an education background. So um, that leads to people doing better during bad times, and I think that that endures to this day. Anyway, that was my answer to him. We were also drinking a lot of whiskey at the time, so it, I don't know if it was. Uh, <laughs> it was more like, yeah, you knew they were they were telling them things, and it wasn't true. <laughs> you know, the priests, they was illiterate too. So I, I feel like you used this phrase recently, and I, it's you ever have like a phrase follow you around? Sure. Um, so I, everyone near me keeps saying no room at the inn. That's not me. I swear you said it. No. Nope. Okay. Well, somebody said, okay. I know my mom said it. I heard it somewhere else. I heard it on TV and I said to my roommate, I was like, I keep hearing this fucking phrase. Like, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. She was like the Bible. (laughs) I was like, what? Really? Yeah. So apparently, okay. Thank you. So apparently there was no room at the inn. So Jesus was born in a barn and that's what that means. And that's why he was born in a barn. And I, she was like, did they you? They had B&Bs back then? So she goes, did you know that Jesus was born in a barn? I said, I thought they all lived in barns. <laughs> and she couldn't understand that I didn't know that Jesus was born in a barn. They were essentially cave-dwelling people. I mean. He did come out of the cave that one time. <laughs> but I was like, I know about five things about Jesus. Like he was a baby and then he was a Jew and he's a carpenter and the cave and the the hands and the crucifix and his mom immaculate conception. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's all I know about Jesus. She's like, I thought this would have gotten into the, the popular mainstream. And I was like, that Jesus was born in a barn? L- literally, did they have fucking structures? <laughs> like, I don't I understand. Don't, I, I'm a little... I, 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 I need to do my homework. You guys really didn't know this? I mean... Uh, for years, I retold a joke that when someone's like doing something sloppy or leaves a door open, I'd be like, "What were you born in a barn?" Oh, sorry, Jesus, didn't know that was you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really. I never went to church, and I know this.
Like the manger is something they use to feed animals, like like stuck them in a food dish for horses. And then she texted our group <clears throat> chat and my other friend who's Jewish was like, I don't know. And I was like, what do you, of course we don't know this. But then my roommate also didn't know there were 26 letters in the alphabet. Oh, she goes, my. why is that something I need to know? Oh, my. <laughs> I said, it's not something you need to know. It's just something we all know. Does she know how many cards are in a deck? <laughs> oh, God. Was it 52? Yeah. Okay. I got confused for a second. Wow. Same as weeks in a year. That's right. Um, but and yes. then sometimes you got two jokers in there. So Jesus was born in a barn. Well, don't forget the cards at the front that tell you how to play. And then and then there's the the whole controversy of not to not to get too Christopher Hitchens on, on this show, but Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. Right. I don't know what that. What, I don't know, where are you going with that? Born in Bethlehem. Oh. So for some reason, Joseph and Mary just decided that they needed to take a pilgrimage when she was nine months pregnant with the with a ghost's baby, and uh, deliver. In uh, Bethlehem, because they were trying, they were trying to. Let's just say that the I think the apostles were trying to stuff the legend back into the box, and somebody along the way was like, "Yeah, well, there was that guy Jesus, you know, of Nazareth." Like, yeah, but the Lord's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Hmm. Okay. Maybe there was no room at the inn in Nazareth. (laughs) That's what it was. Yeah. Birthing inn. How is God God, but also Jesus's son, but also is God, and then who's the Holy Spirit? You know, I don't know. One time me and my sister went on a Wikipedia rabbit hole and like we were driving somewhere like a long drive. And so she just read, read it to me. And I was like, I, this is more confusing than I ever could have thought. Uh, That's why you need we, an illiterate priest explaining it to you. Should we pay our our uh, respects to Pastor Tim, who has clearly oh, driven oh, in, no. off a bridge by this point? I think he's this. enjoying himself. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's he's miserable. I don't want the answers. (laughs) These are all rhetorical questions. I'm happy in denial. They all lived in barns. He, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe Nazareth and Bethlehem are like next to each other. They're not. They're not. Especially back then. It's like Hell's Kitchen in Times Square. Hey, donkey? A donkey. Oh, I thought you said It's not like they hopped in the car, you know. I don't know. Those donkeys went pretty fast. Nine months pregnant. Just hop on a donkey. Maybe a ghost baby's lighter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, you know who else was immaculately conceived, according to lore? No. The Buddha. Huh. You know who else? You? Genghis Khan. These people need, they're all copying from each other. That's exactly right. What about... That's how things got written in the past. Moroni. What does yours say? They're all just cribbing from one another. Um, answer me. Moroni? Yeah, the angel Moroni who came down from heaven and told Joseph Smith to write the plates. Oh, is that is that Joseph's angel's name? Moroni? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, neat. What about him? Where Are you, you sure it's from? not Moroni? Hey. <laughs> or Moroni? <laughs> sorry, Mormons. In other news. Sorry, I mean, sorry, LDS church. Proving there is a God. According to CNN, Kevin McCarthy is going to leave Congress by the end of this year. He wrote a little op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and I couldn't read it because it was paywalled. Ah, I so tried gonna, to. Yeah, we'll he was like, CNN I version. might be leaving the house, but I'm not quitting you. So Ew. It was like a uh, Bridget no. Jones diary entry. No, do quit us. I'm begging you. But that takes the, the margin down a little bit more because you've got an expelled Santos that took the margin from four to three. Now you got McCarthy. Just taking his toys and leaving the leaving the sandbox in the playground and going home, which will take the margin down to two. In terms of the Santos race, by the way, knowing a little bit about the district since he's my congressman, <laughs> or at least he was, 
We should get a cameo of him. Did you see that? That's why the third Lincoln. Oh, here. that's right. Uh, in terms of uh, that race, there's a person who is going to be. I'm just going to predict it now that the odds-on favorite for that will be the person who occupied it before Santos, who probably left because the writing was on the wall with redistricting and the Republicans were ascendant at the time. Um, was it? But it was Tom Swazi. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. He's going to run for it again, or at least he's indicated that he was going to run for it at the end of Santos's term. I saw He'll be able to gather the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time. He's a Democrat, but he's also... He's a blue dog Democrat who's a member of the uh, Gottheimer wing of the party and the the problem solvers caucus. So at least on the big stuff, he'll caucus with the Democrat or he's, he is a Democrat, but he's a Democrat in name only. Uh, but that my guess is that will add one more to the uh, Democratic ledger. As far as McCarthy's district, I know absolutely nothing about it. But if the people there uh, kept electing him, then I can't imagine that a Democrat would have much of a choice in a special election there. Hochul, Hochul grins and bears it with Swazi. That's a political headline. Oh, is that right? I think she backed him. Yeah, and I mean, the listen, Times he's wrote, the odds on favorite. Inside the secret meeting that cleared the way for Tom Swazi's return. Mm. What is that? Three mm. men in a room? Uh, it's probably just him on bended knee to Hochul. One man, one woman in the room. It's because Tom Swazi's best friend is the chairperson of the Democratic Party in New York State. Literally his best friend. That's cute. Isn't that adorable? So fun. That's the chairperson of New York State that is uh, responsible for losing the House, by the way, if you want to blame anybody, who lost five of six congressional open congressional seats in the last run when uh, the Republicans had that horrible turnout and the Democrats closed the the gap in Congress. Five of the six seats that make up the disparity were, you know, lost because New York fucked up their gerrymandering, not once, but twice, and allowed it to get away from them. New York, of all of all places, and uh, cleared the way for Republicans to take over those seats. So if you take a McCarthy out of the mix and you take not losing those fucking seats out of the mix, we'd be at a deadlock right now. So you can blame, his name is Jay Jacobs. So there you go. Political if you're looking for someone to, corner. If you're looking for someone to blame. Back in my day. And uh, as 99 just noted, you can... Hire George Santos. You can pay him on Cameo for a rather reasonable rate. It's like 200 and change. It's going to go up. Oh, I would think so. He's crushing it right now. No doubt. I saw a clip of him where someone asked him what his favorite Taylor Swift song was. And he was like, my favorite song, Trouble. And he went, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Like he sang and it sounded just like that. Oof. Honestly, kind of loved it. I know he's getting his 15 minutes and he's going to earn as much the as he memes. possibly can, but wow. There's a there's like a meme of be gay do crime. That's just like a like a thought meme. It's on no one owns it, but and there's no sort like it doesn't mean anything other than be gay do crime. And so I saw one that was like be gay do crime and it was a picture of him <laughs> and then it said no not like that. <laughs> I know we're not supposed to speculate, so it's a it's a naughty meme. What do you mean not supposed to speculate? Is he out? Yeah, he outed himself on Twitter what? yesterday. What? Yeah. What? X, whatever the Excuse fuck. Excuse me? X Twitter. He it capitalized bolded I'm a proud gay man because he was in the process of outing a Republican Congress member in Staten Island. A woman. And he was insinuating that she is gay and closeted. Yeah, that happened. Wait. 
the article that we're going to link is from NPR uh, showing that uh, Senator John Fetterman, by the way. This whole yep. time he's been out? This one says, openly gay rep elect George Santos didn't disclose divorce with woman from 2022. Yeah, he's he's been I out. I thought this was like a thing where we were like, everyone was being mean, like he's gay. How did I, I miss think this? The, I think the meanness part was, came with nobody really knowing what to do with his cross-dressing past. You don't. We don't say that anymore. That's what I'm saying. I know, but we don't say cross-dressing. I know, but you know what I'm saying. I know, but right. But that's how people identify with it. So that that was the, that was the whole thing. Is like people were saying, "Oh, he's a cross-dresser." People were like, "Oh, don't say that." So the controversy came up over over that, and I think everybody just like stopped talking generally about his sexuality because that was the the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying we don't have to call it that. Okay. What do you want to call it, by the way? It would. He would be dressing in drag. Okay. We just, it's just not a word that his clothes have no gender technically. And also it's right. been a slur for people. Just like, like drag isn't? Or no. is that one they're trying to reclaim? I no, can't that's not a slur. It. That's what they call that. Cross-dressing to me is a lot less offensive than you're a drag queen. What? No. Yeah. It's the op- opposite. It, it, but I don't think so. You're trying to tell me? What about RuPaul's Drag Race? You right. think that's a slur? No, because she's reclaiming it. It's not reclaiming. He's reclaiming it. Both are fine. They're reclaiming it. Well, I, you could say she or he for RuPaul. Don't try to argue with me on this one. No, I'm, I am arguing with you on you're, this one. But you're just, you are wrong. Okay. <laughs> I can be wrong, right? We don't use the, the, Who's we? You don't the use The community it. of people who respect people who do drag <laughs> doesn't use that. Okay. Drag queens, they can call themselves cross-dressers if they want to. But you can't call drag queen a cross-dresser. Okay. Just like you can't use the T-words. Which ones? Transgender? No. That's an acceptable word. I'm not going to say them. The other words that might have tran in them. Trans, tran. You can see where I'm going. I can't say trans? No. That they're a trans person? You're not... People will still say they'll say transsexual and they'll say tranny. You're not... We don't use those words anymore. Tranny, I knew. Yeah. Trans is not okay? No, transsexual. I know, but is trans Yes, trans is fine. Oh, Okay. Oh, very complicated. It's not. You're sounding like a grandpa even more now. I'm frustrated. Don't be frustrated. Uh, so anyway, I think that that was the controversy. And then people just broadly stopped talking about it because they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I just didn't. But know yeah, he no, he out. he said he was because he ran as an openly gay politician. That was part of his platform. And the Republicans embrace it because they're like, cool. That's there's there's some tokenism. We've got a, a gay an openly gay Latino male running for a, a predominantly Democratic spot. Check, check, check. That's how the Republicans embraced him without doing any other fucking fact checking on this guy. I don't know how I missed life. that. Yeah. I really thought that people were just being mean. But what I'd never seen was him openly embrace because he can be a person now. He's the not proud gay man aspect of it. Like like he wrote on X the other day. I think he. I think he, there's some, deep down, he has some semblance of a personality, and I think that's part of it. He seems hysterical. <laughs> he seems like a gas to hang out with. I just, I, I wouldn't lend him any money, and I uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't ask him to babysit my kids. Other than that, he's Why? probably lots of fun. Well, I, I just think he'd, like, not show up. Okay. You know. I was just making sure it couldn't be interpreted in. There is a longstanding. Oh, not people, pedophilia. Yeah. No, I'm talking about uh, leaving him with anything that I would is like really important to me. 
Okay. You know, he's wouldn't not trust him for anything. Yeah. Because. No. Well, I'm just after Grandpa Corner. I wanted to make sure it wasn't misconstrued. Totally fair. So, yeah. So, John Fetterman actually paid for a cameo to have Santos troll Bob Menendez, which is all really. And then Santos took to X to say that he was filing an ethics complaint against Bob Menendez's son. It's all so fucking crazy. Why? I love it. Why that? Because he's claiming that uh, of all the investigations that are taking place for Bob Menendez, that Bob Menendez's son as a partner in potentially a business, a family business operation that they had must have known a lot of stuff and he should be looked into as well. So he's taken to Twitter to just every day file ethics complaints against other people that he thinks are even worse than whatever he's done. Wow, I really miss a lot. I can't wait till he's like, you should investigate Eric and Lyle Menendez too. (laughs) They're complicit. I like that. Thank you. Now you're getting into my generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the last headline is that the, uh, is has to do with climate news. COP28, we're going to put this one in the newsletter as well. Uh, COP28 is just turned into full-on fucking mockery. It's just a joke at this point because you have Sultan Al-Jabbar, who is the president of an oil company presiding over COP28. And so much has already come out about him basically, you know, back channeling uh, negotiations and deals for oil and gas leases while he's there. Uh, hacking into the COP28 email database to see what they're talking about. And now uh, he was in a public forum um, where he was being interviewed by somebody and he kind of erupted at that person saying, um, you know, getting off of fossil fuels is, uh, isn't going to happen. And that's the guy running COP28. So full mockery no longer matters. The Outrage and Optimism podcast has just turned into outrage. It's got to be lit they up. They literally dropped optimism. It's got to be lit up. <laughs> so that's Good podcast. That. Everyone check that out. Yeah. We recommend it a lot during our climate industrial complex series. Indeed. Out of the UK, the people that, a couple of the people that I think were a significant, had significant authorship over the Kyoto Protocol, if I'm not mistaken, back in the day. The, I thought right? it was the Paris Climate Accord. The Paris Climate Accord. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. All right, so let's get into some emails now. The first one is from Stephen J. 99, take it away. Yeah, so these will be some emails directly from last week. Sorry, I don't know why I just, my brain stopped. I think it was because you, you like moved and I just... I'm over here. <laughs> okay, so Stephen J. said, I just finished the three men that can beat Biden episode and I figured I should throw in my two cents as someone in their mid-30s. I have to say, I don't like Biden. I grew up in Delaware, and to me, he's always going to be the senator from Bank of America. But I would suck it up and vote for him over Trump. But the thing that annoys me the most about him is the fact that I only voted for him in 2020 because he promised to be a one-term president. I hate liars, which which he proved himself to be with that promise. I would gladly vote for most other Democrats, but I am also in Canada for a possible move if Trump gets back in the White House. Mm. As someone in the LGBTQ community, I wouldn't feel safe in this country with tiny hand Donnie <laughs> back in the White House. Yeah, the the cultural aspect of a, a Trump presidency is something that um, we can't talk about enough, frankly. Oh, I don't want to talk about it at all. <laughs> yeah, or that. Yeah, it's one way or the other. It's a very good point. As far as uh, Biden lying about the 2020 thing, about being a one-term president, I do remember that. I don't remember him actually 
promising. I, I, I remember him sort of playing fast and loose with the words there, just being like, you know, I, at, at a minimum, you got to get me in for a term to undo and to stop the fascism and to undo all the terrible things that have been done to restore pride. I should be able to get that done within a term. T TBD on whether I would not, I wouldn't run again, but you know, for, I'm the person that you need for the next four years. So I don't know if that makes him a liar, but yeah, he's he's been proven to be a liar uh, more recently on so many other issues that I would agree with you. The choices are going to be wild. Steve and I said last show notes that I, I believe that it's not, or maybe I said at the end of the episode that I, I don't think it's going to be him. I really think that he is going to drop out, especially if you if his numbers among people of color continue to drop as precipitously as they've been dropping over the past six months or so. He's going to have a, a really difficult time closing the gap in some really important states. So, you know, obviously, again, thinking about the Carolinas, thinking about what's happening with the uh, the Muslim and Arab population in Michigan that makes up a significant voting block. And my general thesis that I kind of worked out with Manny, which was the black vote in the United States is still very much a determinant in swing states and in urban centers in particular and in, in swing states that have big urban centers and blocks. So think about Georgia and think about Atlanta. Think about uh, the urban centers in Michigan, even Ohio. It's incredibly important to have a high turnout among black voters. I think that among the black voters, specifically the older voters that will turn out, they will continue to pull the lever for a Joe Biden. It's the turnout question that to me is going to be the ultimate determinant. I think that younger people, younger people of color in this country will be more inclined to just throw their hands up and stay home, which we've seen in the past as well. And that can be that can be the determining factor. That That's what makes me really nervous. The only thing that I that again, that I had teased out with Manny is that among older black people in this country, RFK is still a meaningful name. And I don't know what that pretends. I really don't. There's been a lot of talk about and how an independent RFK candidacy actually hurts the Republican field more than it hurts the Democratic field. I'm not so sure about that. I haven't necessarily seen any evidence of that. I think it could be on equal measure and then turn out again does really matter. He means something and he says a lot of things that resonate, I think, with the black community. The other part of it is... One of a, a tried and true leftist friend of mine is going to be is going to be one of his delegates in New York State. One of your friends? Yeah. A friend of mine is going to be a delegate for for RFK in and a lot of that has to do with vaccine hesitancy. So that that's why I say I, I don't I don't think you can just I don't think you can put any of these third party candidates or any of these scenarios in a bucket like you used to be able to, you know, could so could he be a Ross Perot level spoiler? Could he be a Nader level spoiler? Maybe, but on which side? I, I just don't think it's as easy to see as it used to be. Why do people still love, not love, but why do people still love talking about Ross Perot? Oh, he, he comes up on like a bunch of podcasts. I listen, like comedy podcasts. He people was so making iconic. fun of him. He was just so He's, iconic. Did he speak? Interestingly, he did. That... He spoke like this. Okay. <laughs> he spoke really quick with a southern accent, and he had a little bit of a lisp in there, like this. This is basically a dead-on, spot-on Ross Perot imitation. You don't even need to go listen to him because you're listening to him right now. Well, I... and he had a couple of basic lines that he would just say over and over and over, and he made those points emphatically, 
and they were just enough there's, for people to be like, you know what? I'd listen to that guy. There's one thing that they always say that he said. Uh, Perot's catchphrase. Um, I guess we're going to have to yeah. have a spoiler sketch. Don't you think? Ross Perot. Ooh, they can be in a club called the Hanging Chads. Uh, Hold for applause. Oh, God. Fuck all of your paywalls. God. Let's see. This is all about... Oh, no. The activist is not the man who says the river's dirty. The activist is the man who cleans up the river. No, it's no. not that. War has rules. Mud wrestling has rules. Politics has no rules. I'm losing my Perot here. Yeah, I wonder if it's just something that, like, that he didn't even say. That they just say that it's he probably said. probably Dana Carvey. It might, it might be that then. So are you doing Dana Carvey doing Ross Perot? No, I'm doing Ross Perot, I okay. promise you. <laughs> now, see, see, now it ain't going to be easy. Now, this deficit. And take some sacrifice. We got to tighten that belt. See, now you may have heard some of my program, 50, uh, 50 cent a gallon gas tax to help build our infrastructure and so on. But I know all you good Americans are willing to share the pain if it's equal and fair. So, step one, a national curfew, nationwide, lights out, 8.45 p.m. <laughs> Now, you may say, Ross, what am I going to do after 8.45? Well, I suggest you sleep. You'll be glad you did when you hear that national wake-up siren at 4.45 a.m. <laughs> and and don't, don't you worry, folks. You won't sleep through it. It'll be loud. I'm showing my the, age. The better part of that time period was, <laughs> was Phil Hartman did General Stockdale, who was uh, Perot's running mate. And uh, that the one that he, the phrase he kept, I think the SNL skit was him just saying gridlock. He would just like utter a whole bunch of non sequiturs and then he'd grimace and they'd be like gridlock. Mm. Basically like his brain was just locking up and frying from some sort of post-war trauma. Um, anyway, th those are fun. Those are worth revisiting. I do find myself not laughing at a lot of the old SNL stuff. Though. I think that's, I think that's all of time. I Our brains are different. I genuinely laugh at a lot of the new stuff. Yeah. Right. Oh, is that what you mean? Like when you yeah. go back and it's not. Yeah, as clever I'm sure and funny. it was hilarious yeah. at the time. I mean, there yeah. are things that will stand up, but like the Three Stooges isn't laugh out loud funny, but you can tell it was hilarious. Right. So we, we're just not. Our, we look at so much data every nanosecond that. Yeah, like you know, I go back and I I watch old Mel Brooks stuff, and I'm like, I just those I just don't laugh. I don't know. The, well, I think there's also a difference between like smiling through the through the whole thing. Yeah. Which is also worth something, maybe even more than like belly laughing. Or being shocked. And yeah. Being like, oh my God. Yeah. So if you just like smile throughout a whole movie and you're just like really enjoying yourself, but you're not laughing, I think that's still quality. Yeah. Because you're like, I'm having fun. I just. What aggravates the shit out of me is like, I can, I, and I've said it before, I can play like old songs that I love for my kids and be like, I wonder if they'll experience this song for the first time the way I experienced it for the first time. And they never do. Unless they fucking hear it on TikTok, in which case they're like, oh, my God, I just discovered this song. With, with like, TikTok, God. they're also like the songs, they either they speed them up or they edit them in some way. So they sound different and they sound they're 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 hookier on TikTok. Yeah. And they put them to a visual that really resonates with yeah. them. So it like creates that memory all of a sudden in their minds. Yeah, I think there there's definitely something lost with digital music because when my parents tell stories about listening to music, it's always like they memorize the album cover and like yeah. they would sit and read the liner notes totally. and 
you know, you couldn't, miss that. you had to save up money to get records. It wasn't just like everything, literally everything free at your fingertip, free for a fee, but. And also the thrill of hearing it on the radio when you didn't oh, know yeah. it was coming. I at least got to experience that. Yeah. So, mm. um, but anyway, Ross Perot. Ross Perot. You missed my joke. I did. I'm sorry. I said that they could be in a sketch and they were all in a club called the Hanging Chads. Okay. Because of what's his face? Gore. Yeah. Yeah. You put him in the mix. You don't like it? They're a bunch of chads. Do y'all maybe the <laughs> lo, the the Chad thing is lost on you also. Yeah. Like the con like the meme of the name Chad. Yeah. And they're all hanging out, but also hanging chads. Okay. It's like a, a Chad is like a bro. Oh. Like you don't want to be named Chad. Isn't he Pete Davidson on SNL? Speaking of SNL. Is he Pete Davidson? He is, played Chad on SNL. That was a recurring character. Uh, you clearly know more about that than me. All right. Chad, I hope we can forget about my brief lack of self-control today. Okay. I truly hope that my actions haven't um, tainted our friendship. <laughs> Taint. And lastly, Chad, I'd like to thank you. Because today you taught me. For a brief moment, I wasn't a spectator to my own life. I was living it. Safety. <laughs> You're right, Chad. I should laugh more. Well, you missed my joke. I didn't. It was a question. <laughs> my joke was good, and I guarantee the unfuckers laughed in our cars. Okay. Okay. <laughs> did you just hiss at me? I did. Holy shit. <laughs> Dan H. said, I will say, coming from the socialism series in Israel-Palestine, this quickie was pretty jarring in a pleasant way. I found myself laughing out loud on the bus to work. Got some questionable looks. Good stuff. For parents of little ones, I highly recommend Sandra Boynton's Barnyard <laughs> Musical. cut up the reason he added this. I know. <laughs> I think it was important context. All right. Two fun connections to post-show musings. I had a stuffed moose that I won at an amusement park playing a bowling carny game. I was eight. The moose didn't make it past 11. Boys are the worst. Rip. And I learned House on Pooh Corner when my mother-in-law sang it constantly to my son. It's actually one of the better kids' songs because it's not mind-numbingly boring and repetitive. For other parents of little ones, I highly recommend Sandra Boynton's Barnyard Musical compilation, Philadelphia Chickens. Oh, All right. That sounds great. Look it up. Did you listen to House on Pooh Corner after? Nope. Now it's stuck in my head. Because I saw this five minutes ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, we talked about it last week, though, saying, so I didn't know True. if you listened to it. Um, okay, Stephen S. Stephen S. is mad. Is he? Yeah, maybe okay. rightfully so. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Th I this relates to another uh, comment. I, I don't think you pulled it. Uh, somebody else was mad at me, but that might have been on YouTube. But go ahead. I'm, I, I don't know. I agree with most of what you were saying about Biden's re-election chances and the forces working against him. If you want to say he's too old, fine. I'm not going to argue that. The clip you played of him isn't about his age. It's about his disability. Assuming that's the one where he said a, na a nation. So he's been a stutterer. America can be described in one word. Yeah. He's been a stutterer for all his life, and he's done a remarkable job of operating politics in spite of it. Every so often, though, he stumbles over words. That what was That's what was happening in that clip you played. And, com and I commented on it with, holy fuck, that's just ableism. Will the, will the right use that against him? Sure, but you don't have to help them. So that clip, I actually, so the original clip that I pulled... I agree with you, by the way, uh, and I, and I shouldn't have used that one because there's like a thousand others of him not 
stuttering, but you know, making really horrific gaps. Doesn't sound like a stutter to me, though. That's that's where I'm coming from on that one. He so he he stut. I should have I should have left in the other half of the clip, the longer clip. So the funny part to me was he sets it up with you know America can be described in one word. Then he fumfers over what he's trying to say, and then goes on for the whole thing. When in the foot when I was in the foothills of the Himalayas with President Xi, we talked about this thing, and, then, and he goes on and on, and he never gets to the fucking word. So I should have left the entire thing in for context. It was just it was dragging on for so long, it lost the point. And then, but you're right. I I, I think that that actually was ableist, and there was many many better examples that I could have used. Well, let's get into some general feedback now. Goat said, "I saw an interview with one of the Doctors Without Borders." We're working desperately in Gaza. She said they have to invent a new term. WCNSF stands for Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. They're apparently getting a few of those. What do you make of that? Uh, what I make of that is that's that's why um, I felt comfortable in changing my language from ethnic cleansing to genocide. That uh, what we're seeing unfold now, particularly as uh, Israel now enters the south of Gaza, and begins to lay that to waste when they said that uh, it was really just northern Gaza that needed to be evacuated. By the way, 80% of, of Gazans are displaced now. 80%. And they are not going to stop until all of Gaza is cleared out, and then they are going to raise the entire area and rebuild a shining city just for Israeli residents and citizens. And I have no idea what will happen to the 1.8 million people that are currently homeless, 1.8 million people. And uh, the now I think it's up to uh, something like, oh God, I think it was 16 or 17,000 dead and um, around 9,000 of them being children. Some children uh, had to be identified by the ashes they left behind as they were incinerated. Uh, Or the children in the incubators that uh, died of starvation when um, all the electricity was turned off in the hospitals in Gaza and uh, doctors and their families were killed. So, yeah, I I don't know what what to make of wounded child, no surviving family, other than um, if that child makes it, that uh, 15 years from now, you know, there will be chickens coming home to roost. And it won't just be in Israel. It'll be all over the world because the world stayed silent at this. Snail Powered said, I found that I broadly agree with Max when he takes a stance. I think it was in show notes that you said one thing I take issue with, though. I may be wrong. You said that we need an assault weapons ban. I think that is incorrect. And taking that approach makes it all more unlikely to happen. Snail Powered then goes through the history of uh, the Firearms Act and then the Gun Control Act and some amendments uh, thereafter that tried to codify what is acceptable to carry, to have, to own, and to deploy, and then finishes off with, of all these homicides, the assault rifle class of weaponry is an extremely small fraction. Far more people are killed by pistols than any class of rifle. This isn't to say we should be regulating rifles, simply that it seems to focus on the most sensational rather than the most rational argument. I think this seriously hurts us in our quest to live in a safer society. I hope I get to hear your thoughts on this. I'd really like to see your platform used to find a realistic solution to this very real problem because it seems like everything else is just failing. I haven't done a full-on on fucking on gun control in this country. Uh, what's interesting and what what's inspiring me here, Snail Powered, is that you talk about 
uh, assault rifles and uh, and being tied to homicides. And my impression was that there were fewer mass shootings when the assault weapons ban was in place. I do get that per capita, just pure numbers, that pistols are uh, an accidental gunfire is responsible for killing more children. Uh, guns not locked up in the home and accidents uh, of that way. For targeted killings versus, you know, with a pistol versus mass shootings, I think that the assault weapons ban is specifically designed or as Snail Power mentions uh, deeper in this long email talking about max capacity for cartridges and things like that need to be part of an overall solution. Uh, but I, I, you know, I these are things that I've read about over over time and certainly absorbed like everybody else and haven't really thought deeply about exactly what form proper gun control can take in this country. But I do know that there are more guns than people. So what has been employed and deployed in other countries won't necessarily work here because we've let we've let the cat so far out of the bag that it would be nearly impossible to stuff it back in. Um, but it is definitely uh, one of those big topics that I think um, is really important for us to get to at some point. So thank you for for clarifying uh, this and, and surfacing this issue in the way that you did. Next, we heard from Josh S., who we read some of Josh S.'s points on last week. They, him and Max had a little bit of a disagreement. But Josh said, I appreciate that you took the time to not only read my feedback, but answer me during your show. In retrospect, I was wrong to call you lazy, and I apologize for that. I listened again to your epilogue, and what sticks out to me on the second listen is the assumption that Israel seeks to oust the Arabs from Gaza and the West Bank and annex them for itself. Viewed through this lens, I can see why you would choose to use charged language like genocide or ethnic cleansing. I do, however, disagree with the underlying premise that the current war with Hamas is driven by anything other than a military objective to eliminate Hamas. There's plenty of valid debate with regard to what human cost is worth such an objective, and whether such an objective is even possible. But to fight back against a terror group that directly attacked civilian targets, took hostages, and then continued a campaign of rocket attacks while hiding behind the Arab civilians that they claim to be fighting for seems pretty necessary from my viewpoint. The loss of life is tragic, but the reason I cringe so hard at the use of charged language here against Israel is that Israel has to choose between fighting back, taking the lives of countless innocents in the process, or hoping Hamas runs out of rockets before Iron Dome runs out of counter munitions. I wrote to you in the first place because the rest of your series shows you can appreciate nuance. I even agree with most of your conclusions, short of some of your use of language, but it's a strong language that's part of what's contributing to acts of anti-Semitism here and in Europe. Anyway, I and many other secular left-leaning diaspora Jews are feeling very conflicted with regard to the magnitude and wisdom of the current war, while still fearful of what our future hopes worldwide would look like if we let ourselves get forced out again from Israel. It's a particular scary time to be a Jew. I want to take these one by one because uh, Josh is a very thoughtful listener, and I hope he stays with us for a long time. Um, that being said. No, not even that being said, okay. I promise. Taking them one by one, the uh, the what sticks out to me on the second listen is the assumption that Israel seeks to oust the Arabs from Gaza and the West Bank and annex them for itself. Um, so... <laughs> Israel's stated policy from every top Israeli official right now is that they would like to clear Gaza, period. They have reached out to other countries telling them, which is why I made the correlation with the Avion Conference in 1938, they're asking them to take in the Palestinian refugees. 1.8 million of the 2 million have been displaced from their homes 
And the official Israeli policy is to drive the Palestinians out of Gaza because all Gazans are technically complicit in the war against Israel because they voted for Hamas, even though half of the people in Gaza are under the age of 18 and would not ever have been able to have voted in that election. And there was only one election. Hamas is a terrorist organization masquerading as a political organization that won hearts and minds initially and then turned virulently militant and then committed an atrocity on October 7th of this year. You can hold all of these thoughts together at once. But when we talk about, so the West Bank is another issue. In the West Bank right now, what we've seen is violence from Israeli settlers against Palestinians in the West Bank. And the world is decrying that and asking that to stop. The facts on the ground, though, remember we talked very specifically about facts on the ground. In the West Bank, the Israeli policy has been to alter the facts on the ground by increasing and encroaching with Israeli settlements. One quarter of the West Bank is now officially occupied or controlled by Israel. People don't understand that. But that is very, very clear. Those are the facts on the ground. How else are Palestinians to interpret that type of imperial behavior other than settler colonial activity to oust the people of the West Bank as well? Gaza to me is an open and shut case, not because of any, not just because of the facts on the ground, but because they're saying we're going to clear Gaza. I mean, there's there's no other way to view, and, and you have to take them at their word. In the West Bank, it's the same policy that they've had since 1948, which is encroachment and then annexation. Encroachment and annexation. That's what happened in Golan Heights, right? So that's what happened in East Jerusalem. So my guess is that their preference would be at some point to work out a deal where territory of the West Bank is carved out and assimilated with Jordan, but that any talk of a Palestinian state independent of Israel is off the table forever in the eyes of, of the Israeli government. These are just facts on the ground. This is just, I, and, and it's not really up for debate in Gaza in particular. We can talk more about the West Bank, but you know the lack of mobility in the West Bank in particular and the encroachment of the settlements does kind of belie this idea that this is not the intent. Now, uh, I disagree with the underlying premise that the current war with Hamas is driven by anything than a military objective to eliminate Hamas. Well, again, so that I, I just sort of dispelled some of that. But when you say to fight back against a terror group that directly attacks civilian targets, one of the things I tried to do in the series is to point out your opinion on whatever is happening today depends upon the, the start date that you decide to go with. For example, there are younger people who look at 2018 and the assassination of peaceful protesters at the March of uh, for Return at the walls of Gaza as the starting point that Hamas is responding to. So Israel started it by assassinating peaceful protesters and then responded with October 7th in the most horrific way possible. Then there are people that will go back to you know, Baruch Goldstein assassinating 20, 29 people in uh, Hebron while they were praying inside a mosque. People will look at the Palestinian attempts 
to assassinate Israeli or, or successful assassinations of Israeli citizens, children, women. They look at hostage taking over the years and they'll say that, well, the, the, the militant Palestinians really started this thing. So everything that Israel does is a response. This is a war that started with the Nakba in 1948 that was being set up by imperial forces since the 1880s. But this right now is not just October 7th is a battle in a war that started in, in 1948. The disproportionate number of Palestinians that have been killed in this war gives, you know, basically is is because of Israeli superiority funding arms and uh, and and culture and democracy and politics and all those kind of things that make Israel a special case in that region and why they have been able to build up such a uh, such a forceful military in that region as opposed to some of the other countries, right? So it's a war. The fact that this one event was so, in October 7th was so horrific doesn't make the the genocidal response okay, but it, it, it also doesn't mean that they should stop going after Hamas. But to say you're simply going after Hamas when you tell people to evacuate the north of Gaza and then, so there's nobody left, and then they carpet bomb it and and basically take it down when they know that Hamas isn't even there anymore. That's not the same thing. So it's okay to call it what this is if we say Israel is committing genocide and trying to ethnically cleanse and, and take everybody out of Gaza. That is their stated mission. Now the question is, as Americans, at least through this podcast, where do we stand on this? Do we send more arms or do we, like we suggested in Ukraine, use our diplomacy and our might and our position in the world to go there and stop it? I think a lot of like issues, a lot. I think a lot of like issues can be solved, <laughs> speaking of language. But instead of saying, because I, I, I empathize with our Jewish listeners who write in who feel strongly about Israel, because like, like I've said before, there's sort of this like first kind of like wince when people talk badly about it because it feels like they're attacking Jewish people. Yeah. So instead of if we say, you know, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of saying Hamas, not Palestine. So instead of saying Israel, saying like the Israeli government, like yes. even that small switch of language might just take away some of that initial frustration of, well, it's not the people. The people don't want it. The people don't want it. I don't want it. I'm, you know, that's my homeland. So like that might be just something going forward we can like be really cognizant about it to be like it's the Israeli government and there are also bad Israeli actors and mm -hmm. people in the IDF that are killing people innocent people mm -hmm. the Palestinians but I'd say we've established that most of the Israeli people don't want this I'm, I'm willing to go even further than that and and just and continue to say the Likud party and those to the far right of Likud that have essentially, I think, taken over the government. I don't think it's the Israeli government because there's Arabs in that government. There sure. are the socialists in that government. But it is the Likud party. And I think the blood is on the hands of Netanyahu and those to the right, like Ben Gavir, that have chosen to make this a, a crusade, a religious crusade, hmm. more than anything else. Um, but yes, I agree with that. But that brings it to, to his last point here, which is, 
the strong language that's part of contributing to acts of anti-Semitism here and in Europe. We do have to be very careful with language here. It's why the first in the series was dedicated to the, quote, Jewish question, because you cannot possibly understand or appreciate what's going on on the ground any given moment there unless you understand why there is an ethno-national state of Israel in this part of the world. And that's why I'm just as comfortable saying, because it, listen, on the left, more often than not, you'll, you'll actually hear pushback against, quote, Israel's right to exist. Well, no country has a right to exist, people will say. That's not a that's not a right. You have a right to exist peacefully, but countries themselves don't have a right to exist. You wouldn't say that the Lith- United States, <laughs> the Lithuania has a right to exist or the United States has a right to exist. Like we really don't. No, we don't. No, it doesn't. We do mm-hmm. because we've self-determined that this is the type of state that we're going to have now, even though it is, you know, it, it too was built on the back of a genocide. But a country doesn't have a right to exist. Because it's not a thing. Having said that, what we tried to point out was Israel might be singular and the Jewish experience in the world might be singular in that respect. Now, did it have to be in the Middle East? That's where that's a really good fucking question. Could it have just as easily at that time been California? Yep. That would have been. Yep. Well, it could have been legitimately. It could have been a little more difficult to get there. But could have been plenty of other people found their way across the country. Plenty of other people, you know, got on ships and did that. And believe me, as the century went on and the the world matured and trade matured and transportation matured, it would have been just as feasible if they settled in, you know, the state of Israel, which just happens to have the same borders as California and presented a lot less problems being in an area uh, that is predominantly Muslim and carved up by Anglicans from another continent. It just definitely wouldn't help the Jews run Hollywood rumor. No, no, it wouldn't have helped that. But maybe Hollywood develops like the calls are coming inside that from inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's part of what's frustrating, you know, having Jewish family members and having Jewish friends and being in New York and seeing what's happening is that all of this is being conflated and 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 I am not immune to the to the rise of anti-Semitism. I, I see it, I feel it, and I believe that it is there. That, and I'm trying to just be very specific to this conflict, but to try and use more protected language that couches a, a, a genocide somehow in order to prevent, you know, hatred in another part of the world is is it that's a that's a tricky, you know, it's like do, do we not talk about this? Because I don't think I've been fast and loose with the language in this series, and that, and that's that's where you know I'd look for clarification, Josh. And I, th- I think I've clarified my points about this particular conflict, and I'm always cognizant of of mitigating that and disclaiming it, just like every Arab or person of color or you know Palestinian when they get on a Western news program has to begin their diatribe by. Uh, look at Pramila Jayapal uh, the other night on Fox, by the way, you know, just basically has to spend the entire time saying, I condemn Hamas. I condemn the atrocities. I condemn violence against women. I condemn violence against children. I condemn all sorts of, you know, political fanaticism that has been displayed by the Palestinian people. And it's still not enough. 
I, you know, even still with that annoyance factor, I am very cognizant that none of this should be conflated with the Jewish people writ large and the Jewish experience throughout history. So I, I hope I've been, you know, I hope I've cleared myself on that or been clear on that. I just part of it. You can't win them all because there's too much opinion in the mix. Yeah. And I just want to know that Josh and, and other Jewish listeners I, are, are seen and heard. Like, I, I completely get this. And what's happening, what the Likud party is doing is not what the Jews that jammed Grand Central in New York City were saying, not in our name. So that, to me, is just as powerful as, as anything else. Someone got mad that we called Ant- Roger Waters anti-Semitic? Yeah. Did we? I don't think so. I think I said... I couldn't remember if he was pro-Israel or, or anti-Israel. No, he yeah. So he's a great case in point. He is anti-Israel's but government. I don't know. But he, a lot of people consider him to be. I think he might have been vaguely anti-Semitic in the past. I think there might have been some allusions to like the problem with Israel is Jews like that. I I'm, I could be. Speaking out of turn, I, I... Does anybody know? Because I would love to know that. Because I I saw that as well. And we did not. First of all, because you didn't know if he was pro-Israel or anti-Israel. I couldn't anti-Israel. remember. I was pretty and sure my impression anti. is that he is anti-Israeli government, but pro-Jewish. And if I go back and ex- to just experience the wall, I mean... Let's see. Well, I think their earlier work stands fine. That's why, like... Yeah. Let's see. This is from 20, 2023. He was accused of recent anti-Semitism with claims he referred to, quote, Jew food and made up a song about his agent that called him a fucking Jew. That's problematic. What's that on? Uh, the Guardian. Uh, he has, The CIA has also published the campaign against anti-Semitism, has also published emails from Waters where he proposed that an inflatable pig above his concert should be scrawled with an anti-Semitic slogan. The emails from 2010, he also suggested bombing audiences with confetti in the shape of swastikas, stars of David, dollar signs, and, and other symbols. He also appeared on stage in Berlin wearing an outfit that closely resembled a Nazi uniform in May. Um, performing as the character Pink from the from the Wall, he wore a black leather trench coat with a red armband bearing two crossed hammers instead of a swastika. But that's the Wall. Yeah, that one, I don't know what that to one To me, that was decidedly anti-fascist and anti-Nazi. Yeah, he's always insisted he's not an anti-Semite, so the performance was quite clearly a statement in opposition to fascism, injustice, and bigotry. Um, let's see. In the same tour, he compared the killing of Palestinian journalist to the killing of Anne Frank. His Norbert Stachel, his former saxophonist, alleged several instances where he said Waters displayed anti-Jewish sentiment. Oh, He claimed Waters lost his temper on tour in Lebanon after a succession of vegetarian dishes were produced at a restaurant and demanded that the waiters, quote, take away the Jew food. Stachel also alleged Waters mocked his grandmother, who was murdered in the Holocaust, that a colleague warned him not to react to any comments about Jews if he wanted to keep his job. I feel like that's enough to call someone loosely anti-Semitic. If they're all true, then it's certainly enough. Yeah. There's been a campaign against him, though, because he was like, well, because he, he, at the time, like I was told not to like him essentially because he was anti-Israel. Right. And at the time that meant it meant Absolutely. the same thing. Yeah. Now, I mean, 
people who were involved, like who've been activists, obviously have always known. So I don't mean, you know, I'm saying in my circle of people who were just pro-Israel. Listen, he's no Woody Jews. Allen. I'm not going to defend him like I do Woody Allen, who's a great man and a great director. Yes, thank and- you, Noam. <laughs> um, but I think now, now it's like what I, I jokingly said, he's probably returned to popular favor because now people are like, oh, that guy was kind of saying the right stuff all along. I don't know. I don't really know what his other policies are, but that sounds like he might not like Jews also. Maybe. I feel like. Maybe. I mean, not, if there's literal certainly e- not something I'm emails to, saying stars of David, swastikas, and dollar signs, uh, that would be enough for me to be like, nah, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I've turned away from people for less. Read the room, Roger. Yeah. The yeah. dollar signs, you know, it really fucking puts it over. It's like the cherry on top. <laughs> It's like the swastikas weren't bad enough. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to cosplay as the character you created as an anti-fascist symbol, I get that. Like, I mean, what? just look at the wall and realize what he's doing there. He's basically speaking out against Nazis. It sounds like he lost the plot along the way. But he might have lost the plot. Yep. Yeah. It's like in the movie The Pacifier with Vin Diesel. Where they think I was just gonna say that. I know they think that Max, the little boy, he's not he's like fifteen. He dyes his hair bleach blonde, and then they find they find a swastika armband in his locker. And everyone it's like a weird turn in the movie where they're like, Are you a Nazi? But he's really just raw from the sound of music. And he was hiding that he was in a musical because he thought it was embarrassing. Oh. Yes, yeah, it was just like that. Just like that. Yeah. Oh. Wait, so do I like Roger again or do I not? Um, I can't figure it out. I, I do think, like the wall. I think no. I think we're, I think UNFTR takes a stand against Roger Waters. He's an unnecessary part of this equation for sure. Yeah. I think he's to be ignored. I think, Is that fair? Sure. I think okay. the person, I was offended that they said that me equating anti-Semitism to anti-Israel. I'm like, you should know better. That's right. not who I am. That's right. I hate everyone equally. That's right. Including me right now doesn't really hate me. Eh. Hmm. Where are we? Um, Danny F. Danny F. Danny F said, listen to your show notes on Palestine Part 3 and Epilogue and phone a friend with Rashid Khalidi. If you want a different take on Jewish identity, you might want to check out the writings of historian Shlomo Sand, who has a very interesting take on Zionism, the Jewish people in Palestine. The books are The Invention of the Jewish People and The Invention of the Land of Israel. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, well, isn't that even better that he called it, wouldn't invention actually speak to people who don't believe in self-determination? Because it's invented, not created or discovered. I think that this is taking the the reverse of Joan Peters, who talked about the invention of the Palestinian people because they aren't real people. Oh. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting I didn't, this. that is, that I was lost. That, that was yeah. lost on me. Yeah. Well, so we, we'll look into those books. We'll check it out. Danny F., thank you. Now we have Brian C. Brian C. was bubbling with euphoria and historical weight when they heard that Kissinger was dead, wondering if our final big episodes of the year will be a deep dive into the shadow wars and overthrows of the 50s to the 70s that have laid some damn eggs, Mm. some time bombs, and those chickens have come to roost. You said that before. The hand that Kissinger and his collaborators played in the death of millions in the name of economic hegemony? Hegemony? Hegemony. Hegemony. What did I say? I don't. I'm like hegemony. Hegemony, H A J I H O M N Y. What is it again? Hegemony. Um, hegemony. Okay, that makes sense. Like Gemini. Econ- you know what? It's economic. 
hegemony. No, I lost. I don't know. I can't say it. Economic, you say it. Hegemony. Thank you. And global capitalist greed and the military industrial complex. FMF and FHK. Hegemony. (laughs) There's so much good Kissinger stuff out there that I I don't feel the need to do a full-on exploit of his hundred years. What a fucking crime he got to live that long as 99. The Theranos part is my favorite. You know that. Uh, uh, this is this blood thing sounds like it is a good investment. Why what is do you that, mean I lost $2 million? Why is that your Netanyahu impression also? No, uh, Netanyahu is more... It's uh, the same. Uh, uh, the, the more Jewish... Uh, oh. Wait, Jewish... Uh, wait, I was bubbling with euphoria and historical weight when I heard Kissinger was dead. Whereas Henry Kissinger is just like this. Does he have an accent? Kissinger? Yeah. You know I've never from heard here. him speak. Never heard him speak? Imagine. Why, why would I? Imagine the devil. And there you go. So I don't think sometimes I Sometimes I to really do, am stupid. Sometimes you're really not. Somet- <laughs> How was I supposed to know he had an accent? I I, uh, I don't think, I don't feel the need to do a full on uh, unfucking of Kissinger. How, having said that. There's so many topics. I mean, the guy was in the public eye for so fucking long. So long that everyone's heard him speak. (laughs) That we will invariably trip over him again, for sure. I still want to do something on the Dulles Brothers. I mean, it just... The Dulles Brothers? There's so much ahead of us, unfuckers, and uh, I really can't wait. We really need to get back into conniving people. You know, we haven't done a good conniver. They're, they're the scariest episodes. Yeah. When you realize that there's like six people who pull the strings of the whole world. The Wilkes brothers. The Koch brother. Koch brother. <laughs> the Coors family. The DeVosses. The Anheuser-Busch oh, so family. <laughs> so many. The Labatt Blue family. Hey, how about a blue, eh? Modi said the book Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill is more important as AI insinuates itself and its algorithms across the world. Hey, on fuckers, let me ask you this. I have so many possibilities for an AI episode. But what are you curious about? Send me down a rabbit hole, would you? Please write in UNFTRpod at Gmail. Let me know what you want to hear about. I can tell you what I think is one of the most interesting threads. Tell me. Um, is the, like, there was just a new AI coalition announced, and then there was that, like, open letter they wrote. It's the people, to me, the scariest thing is the people who are deeply involved being like, hey, not like this. That's scary. And then if you take on the singularity aspect of it and the open AI, like, what their actual mission is, which is called... AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, which essentially general or generative. I think general. Okay. Different than general. So it's generative AI, something else. General, they want AI to be everywhere, generally, literally. Like they want put your brain in a thing, make it AI, make it the singularity. Like that is the end, this, the futurist perspective. I read a really good piece when I was I had a whole conversation with my sister about it. It was a night we had like a like a intellectual spar. I was like, wow, is this what is this what people do? But um when the whole thing was happening at OpenAI, 
So I didn't really know, like OpenAI was founded and their mission, they told their investors, like, you're probably not going to make money on this. That's not our goal here. We're like a nonprofit, essentially. But if we do make money, you'll make it like a hundred times what we've made because they practice what they call ethical altruism. It's a new, it's like this new movement of which I'm sort of against. My sister is sort of pro, loosely on each side. But instead of solving today's problems, they want to solve tomorrow's problems. Ethical altruists, they're basically like, well, there's X billion amount of people to come. Isn't it selfish to try and like fix things on the ground? You know, why feed this homeless person when we could combat climate change? Why do this when we could do that? So there's a lot of these like pick and choosing. And there's a lot of, my sister was saying, a lot of superiority among these people who feel like we're doing, you know, God's work and everything. And the one thing that I, (laughs) we sort of ended the conversation was all of these things require money. And I basically was like, well, their number one, if they really want to fucking fix the world, they should combat capitalism. But they wouldn't do that because it's all money backed. And I was like, mic drop, I win. Yes, you did. That's because because there is enough. Yes, future proof exactly. and fixed today. That's what I said. I said, well, we if 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 one percent of the people didn't have all of the money, then we could literally combat climate change right fucking now. Yep. We could feed every hungry person. Like there, we could eradicate homelessness to the degree it's possible on the personal level. You know, you can't help everybody. Instead, we put the president of an oil company from the United Arab Emirates in charge of the climate change. Right. So it's, you know, it's pretty bullshit for ex-billionaire, not not literally ex, but XYZ billionaire to say, well, you should be working to future proof and the future and the future is this. When we have people suffering right now and people suffering to come that aren't born yet that are in the in the immediate future, not not in three, four, five generations. But you want to shove your money up some fucking investor's ass mm-hmm. instead of helping people on the ground now, which in turn would help people in the future. So it's like, you know, ugh. it's a pretty cynical, elitist thing to devote your life and your money to. Yeah, and that's sort of at the core of OpenAI. Because there won't be billions of people unless you climate change today. It's on their list, and thankfully. Also, <laughs> and also, not let people suffer. Yeah, let me see. I thought there was, they have like a, yeah, I wonder if this is the page. Effective altruism? Have I been saying ethical? But ethics are, so I'm seeing it being called both things. It looks like it's maybe more called effective rather than ethical, but I'm also seeing it called ethical. I was gonna, I said as a joke to my sister, I was like, well, the fucking person who might be able to cure climate change if we don't help them right now, you know, it's the the uh, abortion. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that person could cure cancer. I'm like, well, all right, you know, at it. Let's let's save them. So basically, I agree with people who are pro-abortion or nope, anti-abortion because I'm using the same logic. <laughs> right. Well, that took a turn. Uh yeah. <laughs> But um, effective altruism, I hate when I get a word wrong. Well, it's not necessarily wrong. You just haven't, uh, AI just hasn't decided yet which it's going to go with. And we'll just wait for it to give us the answer. Seems like I'm probably just, Jen, I'm probably wrong. And me and this other guy are also wrong. (laughs) This other guy. You know. Well, we're at a buck 30. So why don't we uh, move on to Ron M. 
Ron said this. This was a reply to your to the newsletters. There's some references to your music callouts in the newsletter. So the series you did on Palestine was terrific. Made me think of a lot of the media in the 80s. I remember when Nightline started as a nightly update on the hostage situation. I remember that someone made a farce song out of the Nax My Sharona called Ayatollah. I remember that. That played on the radio regularly that year. If I remember correctly, the song ended with a nuke exploding. Nice. I'm not brilliant or even smart, but I remember wondering, why do these people hate us so much? The media gave us no clues, but no one is born hating. It was all Reagan, America rules, and the terrorists must die. Even my favorite at the time, Peter Jennings, didn't dig into the history for his audience. Yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, about news literacy and the golden age of journalism. So much of the danger of what's what exists and what's ahead is that the, the great contextual journalism is really done and has always been done in print. And there was a, there was a golden era in the 1970s when... Everybody was kind of basically chasing the Woodward and Bernstein dream. And there was a lot of money in publishing and there was a lot of latitude. And you, you know, bureaus were allowed to do long, long form journalism. Now you see cooperatives and collaboratives and we quote them sometimes. So we'll look at uh, ICIJ as an example and look at the work that they do. And their collaborations among really highly trained, well-respected international journalists that do these great investigations. But then again, you don't really read about them. You don't you don't see them on the news, and it certainly doesn't make its way through to the you know the twenty four seven social media landscape that has to be done in bits and bytes and shorts. And uh, it it just we are losing our attention span and our ability to really contextualize things. I am in I am, I am encouraged and emboldened, I guess, at the same time by the appetite that's out there for long form. Thus, this show. A lot of the other shows that have grown on YouTube, for example, are very, very long form explainer videos that do deep dives into topics. Those two can be dangerous because, you know, like us, I don't get it right all the time. That's why it takes us a long time to get to source things. But the 80s and 90s to me were particularly shallow in that the cursory reporting that was being done really was missing the mark on a lot of the historical context. It's why Bill Clinton could be law. So the Republicans took Bill Clinton to task for, you know, not being able to keep his dick in his pants, essentially. But then they railroaded a really super conservative agenda under all of our noses. And the left wasn't really there was no outcry on the left for that conservative agenda. And the Republicans were just happy to see everything passed. We didn't know what was going on. I mean, that was when that was during the very beginning stages of my political awakening, just as a sentient being in the world. And I didn't really understand that deep context. And I certainly wasn't going to get it on the television. That's why every course I took in college was like, holy fuck, this is crazy. And wow. we were 10 years outdated. How come nobody told us this? Wow, this is this is just amazing information. And then when you start self-educating and reading books and actually go and, and attending lectures and, and learning history, it's like, oh, none of this is the way that I thought it was. I feel like I missed that part of college. I don't think I took any like really eye-opening classes like that as an art major. I took some really good art history classes, but... I don't. I didn't have like an awakening. Like I wish that. I had some art history classes under my belt. I really do. I was really good at it at the time, but I for really a lot of it lost on me these days. I think a, a lot of the better courses just taught me how to investigate things. It's not even that the information stuck with me. It was a bit more about like this is this is how you're you know here's how you can learn if you want to become a lifelong learner. But I remember 
a medical ethics course that we were Ooh. required to take that was absolutely really interesting. Absolutely transformational. It's the course I remember the most and, and the thing I have the least to do with in my life. But it taught me how to, how to evaluate things a little bit differently. I but should learn the most that? from my friends who taught genuinely, not... In a good way? Yeah. I, don't, I was not... We were still saying woke then and, and not mm. in a pejorative way, but I wasn't as woke. I wasn't like a going around saying slurs or anything, but... I never, I didn't care enough. I was more apathetic. Like I always cared, you know, on a, like an emotional level, but I wasn't as invested. On a one to one. Yeah. And so like a lot of like gender rights and equality stuff, they taught me. And I, I used to like get drunk and be like, you guys taught me so much. Thank you. <laughs> I, I credit them with making me a better person. So I had that, but not in like an, a lecture style. My turning point was a lunch at a place called Chat and Chew in New York City. And uh, it was there, my now wife, then girlfriend, and one of her friends. So your ex-girlfriend. What? That's what my Scott, Scott Ackerman my always calls wife. his wife, his ex-girlfriend. It's adorable. At the time, I was uh, a young, brash, pugnacious Republican, of course. And... She was somebody, way cooler than you. Somebody brought, I don't even know why she put up with me. She, well, she's incredibly apolitical, uh, or was up until Trump. And something was brought up, and I, of course, had a response to it because I can't shut the fuck up. And um, he he corrected me politely, firmly, and embarrassed the fuck out of me. And with and he eviscerated me so just so crisply in a matter of maybe sixty seconds that I I left there with my tail between my legs, and I said, "It's time to start reading." And that, that really, that was a huge turning point. I should tell him that someday, too. She still talks to him. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he don't need to inflate his ego. No, he's a good dude. I'm just kidding. He's I don't I don't know this man. <laughs> no men need their ego inflated. How's that? Uh, okay. He's a gay man. Does that help? Just marginally. Okay. <laughs> Over on Facebook, Scott said, question for the group with a little context. My dad, a Democrat who lives in Texas, will change party affiliation to vote for the least worst Republican candidate in primary elections, then re-register for general election to vote for typically the Democrat in a race. Love that. By the way, that's why I am registered a Democrat, so I can vote in primaries in New York. So that's interesting. I live in a blue county in a purple state, Clark County, Las Vegas, Nevada, a state that had a lot of races at local levels that are pretty crucial and come very close between the R&D candidates. Do you think it's worth my time and effort to do this? Does anyone here participate in this type of gamesmanship in demographically similar states? Thanks in advance for helping me unfuck the silver state. So I'll just leave that out there to the wider group. This was uh, Scott who asked this in the Facebook group. If you're not in the Facebook group, but you're on Facebook, just go to our Facebook page and click on the group Unfuckers at All, and you will be welcomed in by Dan and uh, Bob Knudsen and a whole bunch of other curators in that group that take very good care of us over there. And answer Scott. Let him know what you think about that strategy. I'm sort of agnostic to it, but uh, I think that anything that fucks up the Republican side of the uh, spectrum uh, is a good thing. I think you should commit voter fraud and <laughs> yeah, there register you go. Republicans as Democrats. Register a dead person. Do it. Make you it happen. You have to find the dead person first. Go to the cemetery. Write down her name. Make an ID. Interesting. A fake ID. Just go... And then register for an abandoned building. Well, I mean, with mail-in voting, there's going to be so much fraud. Oh, so much. Yeah. So much. We'll have yet another stolen election. Over on YouTube. I like this one. Enbach <laughs> said, I'm re I'm reading. 
<laughs> I'm readying and rereading Ayn Rand. Thanks God for Ayn. I just thought it was good luck with that. And Bach. There's been a lot of fighting. People were fighting over MMT. Oh, people are mad at my MMT. But someone defended you. What's that? Someone today. Was mad. Someone's like that makes sense. <laughs> no, someone someone yelled at the person who is mad from last. Oh, week. really? Yeah. Oh, good. That's nice. Uh, MMT and the Freedman Canes uh, seem to be bubbling up a little bit That's and good. giving it's us working. a little life. Yeah, the algorithms out there. We are uh, days, some days, maybe a week, week and a half away from finally dropping "Fuck Milton Friedman" on the YouTube. And then I will be asking for all of the unfuckers to help support us in spreading that word. There's a lot of Milton Friedman stuff out there all of a sudden, out of nowhere. And we need to make sure that we uh, claim the mantle of being the ones that uh, reintroduced him to the world as the bad guy. Yeah, we got to check out that book. But it's nice to see. Nice to see it getting some wind. Even FD Signifier did a piece. Uh, He did a video uh, like six or eight months back that was like, this is the guy. Oh, my God. I found the guy that they all love. Which is funny. So, yeah, Milton Friedman getting his uh, his next round of, of fame. We had him first. Yes, we did. Now, let's get into coffee donations and members uh, so we can round this out and give this file to Manny. Tim G is now a member. All of you are amazing, educational, entertaining. Thank you. Big Dog is now a member. Keep up the good work. And McNamara JD is now a member. Thumbs up. Thank you. Thank you to all three of you for joining our movement. We need about a thousand more of you. So let's get after it and let's build something special. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll catch you on the weekend and then we'll let you know from there what we have planned. Bye.